Congressman Mike Garcia discusses Ukraine with Defense News Capitol Hill reporter Brian Harris. What does growing opposition for Ukraine funding mean for White House efforts to get it? Produced by Defense News and Military Times, this is the Early Bird Brief. Each morning, we bring you the defense and national security news of the day. This could cut both ways. If they come back with a hurried response that's just more platitudes and niceties without real clarity, um, you're actually reinforcing the fact that we shouldn't have trust in the executive branch. Lawmakers are preparing to debate further requested funds for Ukraine from the White House. What does it all mean for our defense and security? You'll find out. I'm your host, Jonathan Lairfeld. Today is November 3rd, 2023. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. No, thank you. Yeah, we appreciate it. Um, so Speaker Johnson gave the White House a paper that uh, you wrote with Congressman Crenshaw, I believe, outlining a list of what you need to see in order to get you and other skeptical Republicans to a yes on their Ukraine supplemental proposal. Yep. Yep. Uh, one of the things you want to see is a clarification on what the White House's vision for the end state in Ukraine is. Do you have any updates from the White House and on when you can expect their response? We are hearing, and, and I'm hearing this third hand from uh, the speaker, but also from a couple other folks, uh, that we should be getting a response imminently. It's supposed to be a thick response is the word I think I heard. Uh, we'll see if it's a good response. Uh, because the quality of the answers does matter. And I wanna, I wanna be very clear that the questions we ask in this aren't, aren't cosmic, right? These aren't unreasonable questions. Uh, you, you've read it. And I think any American who reads the questions that we're asking would say that these are reasonable questions. Um, I was very sensitive to making sure that these weren't unobtainium, right? I didn't wanna make the bar, the bar and criteria so high that we would never be able to get to a yes, um, but we're effectively looking to right-size this package. And we're, we're, what we are missing right now, the most critical piece that we're missing is the objective, the strategy to achieve that objective, and then ask us for the tools and the, and the, and the arms needed to achieve that objective, right? Um, and yeah, I'm trying, to behave, I'm trying to compel behavior changes from the executive branch here, because so far after a year and a half, we haven't been told what the, what the objective is, what's the strategy, and what the 61 billion in this case is gonna do to achieve those things. So that's that's the crux of the issue right now. And I, I would almost prefer that the White House take as much time as they need to answer these questions so that they answer them correctly because this could cut both ways. If they come back with a hurried response that's just more platitudes and niceties without real clarity, um, you're actually reinforcing the fact that we shouldn't have trust in the executive branch or in Zelensky or whoever the, the driving force is. But we've got to get that clarity. We've got to get the, the alignment on it. So, you know, the, the document's 15 pages, but the reality is it really boils down to three simple points. What is, what is the objective? What is the knockout punch to achieve that objective? And what is the cost associated with that knockout punch? And I can guarantee you that $61 billion is is not the right number um, because we haven't defined the knockout punch yet. So those those are the three things that, that basically we're, we're waiting to see. And, and for me, that's the quality of the answers is going to define whether we move forward or not. And after this spring's counteroffensive, it seems unlikely Ukraine will be able to retake Crimea, let alone all its territory. So regardless of the White House says, do you have your own ideas of what a feasible end state could look like? Yeah, I think a feasible end state could be reclaiming the Donbass, you know, Luhansk, Donetsk areas, getting back to, you know, the 2014 borders. I think that's a reasonable and achievable mission objective. I don't think you would have the support of the American taxpayers. I don't think you would have the support of, of Congress, to be frank. And I don't think maybe even the Senate or, or the White House to uh, enable reclaiming Crimea. I understand that that's an aspiration of, of the Ukrainians. 
we would probably want to do the same thing. But given the scope and the and the the the, the sort of uh, vision of this exercise that we're in right now, uh, reclaiming Crimea for me is literally you know a bridge too far. So, but again, that hasn't been answered, right? We haven't gotten that that strategic alignment between Zelensky and Biden as to whether or not the the goal is to reclaim the Donbas or if it's also to reclaim Crimea. Reclaiming the Donbas, though, from a tactical and strategic perspective, very doable. This is this 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 is a Soviet legacy army, uh, a, 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 a relatively anemic force right now that's 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 suffered after a year and a half, and and that knockout punch shouldn't be hard, right? But it's not my job to define that knockout knockout punch. My my job is is to fund it and, and be a steward of the of taxpayer money. The Secretary of Defense and our President and Zelensky needed to find that knockout punch, and they have yet to do that. So. Very doable do, um, but they've got to explain that to the American people and to, to Congress, obviously. So the Biden administration's strategy so far has really relied on sanctions and military aid. I would submit there is no strategy. Okay. I, would, I would submit there's a, there's, a, there's a communications and PR plan that basically says, let's do all of the above. We'll do everything that we can. And then he literally says, we will do whatever it takes. That's not a strategy. A strategy is a clear differentiator between you and your opposition. And if your opposition can use the same strategy, it's not a strategy, right? So the fundamental problem is, is that we have no strategy right now. And, and Biden's blank check policy is, is, is the problem. So if we can strip out the humanitarian aid, get down to the core warheads on Russian foreheads um, elements, the munitions, and use those munitions as a, a toolbox to enable that knockout punch, that is right-sized. I think that's all we want if we want to right-size it. Because longer wars are more expensive wars, shorter wars are cheaper wars, right? So if we can end this war quickly with a victory, that budget footprint is actually smaller, not bigger. If we keep continue to do what we're doing, it's not even clear to me that the $61 billion request is like a finite number for the year, right? We may get another request in May asking for another $40 billion for all we know. So that hasn't been communicated yet. Do, do you think we need a diplomatic strategy uh, as yeah. a sidetrack to the knockout punch? Yeah. We, we have what I call strategic ambiguity, intentional strategic ambiguity. And I know you know in Taiwan, that's that's seen by some, and I, I'm not a big fan of this even for the Taiwan strategy, but strategic ambi ambiguity is sort of the recognized strategy as a deterrence for a China invasion against Taiwan. That you can squint and go, okay, that's a valid strategy as a deterrence, but it's not a valid strategy when the bullets start flying and we are actually in war. Strategic ambiguity is the worst thing you can do, okay? So that's what we need the, the clarity on. And so if you don't have that, that strategic clarity on the battlefield, you have no expectation of getting to a negotiation table, right? And that should be the goal. The goal should be to get to the negotiation table. But there's no compelling reason for Putin to come to the negotiation table if he's looking across the battlefield going, these guys don't have a strategy. These guys don't have a means to achieve the strategy. They don't even know what the objective is. So why would I, Putin, go to the negotiation table? It doesn't make sense. We need to force that. And when I say knockout punch, that knockout punch should be the thing that brings them to the negotiation table, right? Um, that can take many forms. It could be deeper sanctions. It could be enforcing the sanctions that we've already applied and actually, you know, doing it right. Um, it could be overwhelming force uh, on a, on a counteroffensive that, that is uh, very bloody, perhaps, but also uh, very powerful. Uh, and it can be a long, drawn-out war of attrition, for, for, for that matter. But Whatever it is, we need to know what the strategy is and that objective, right? And that, that's, what, that's what's missing right now. But, but all wars end at a table. Even Putin's wars, which he's had a lot, and Russia's had a lot, end at a table. And we haven't compelled them to come to that table yet. 
My worry is that Blinken is trying to do the job of the Secretary of Defense, and the Secretary of Defense is closing his eyes and hoping that the Secretary of State does his job, right? And that's what happened in Afghanistan. So we, we can't afford to have that diplomatic piece missing, but when the bullets are actually flying and you're in a hot war, that can't be the only thing that we, we rely on. So now you've got to do both. So that's, that's the short answer. And former President Donald Trump, who is your party's likely nominee, um, opposes Ukraine aid, as do um, many other uh, members of your party running for president. Does that kind of put like a year timeline on this? Uh, we'll see. I think, uh, you know, first of all, I think he's a, Trump's a, a rational actor. I think all of our nominee, you know, candidates are rational actors. If they, if they see there's a value proposition to, to funding the munitions, the, the warheads on Russian foreheads, you know, at $9 billion, and there's a clear objective, there's a clear strategy, there's a clear path to peace, uh, they would probably support it, right? Um, the reason we're hearing these, these types of positions is because there isn't a clear strategy, there isn't a clear objective, and there's not a clear path to peace. So, and then we're seeing these ridiculous numbers like $61 billion without any substantiation underneath it or, or, or as to why this number is right. So the visceral reaction is, you know, we're not doing any of it, right? Um, I'm in a position where we have to figure out how to win. I want, I want Russia to lose. I want Ukraine to survive and reclaim their, their regions. And I want to get full, you know, return on that investment that we've already made. And it's not just about Russia. It's also about China and Chairman Xi. It's about North Korea. It's about, you know, reestablishing our dominance on the global stage. And the biggest impediment to that right now is our president, uh, Biden. So the biggest barrier to a victory in Ukraine right now is President Biden and Secretary of Defense Austin. And I'm, I'm offering them the, the means to remove those barriers. Whether or not they answer them sufficiently or, or with you know, good quality is, is going to determine whether they're successful. So um, that's, that's the point of this. And speaking of uh, Taiwan, it's no secret the Ukraine war has spotlighted um, strains we've already had on our defense industrial base, and defense contractors have struggled to rapidly backfill the munitions we've sent Ukraine. Now we're using drawdown authority for Taiwan. We're sending a bunch of aid of munitions to Israel as well. So uh, can the industrial base handle a two-front war in both Europe and the Middle East? And what about a three-front war if you bring the Indo-Pacific in as well? Yeah, and I would just remember it's also on the heels of COVID, right? So yeah. COVID, Ukraine, all of these things impacting inflation. Uh, now record high inflation is crushing uh, the military industrial complex. Um, I would also remind you that the two front war that you're talking about isn't even American forces involved in these wars, right? You want to talk about massive expenditures. When you see us involved in a, in a war with China, when you see us in, involved in a war in the Middle East, like what we saw for 20 years with the global war on terror, those expenditure rates are off the charts. Yeah. So we're not even really stressing our industrial base and we're having a hard time keeping up with the demand right now. So when you layer on top our own two-front war with a demand from Ukraine and with a demand from Israel and with a demand potentially you know, with Taiwan, whether it's FMS or FMF, or we're giving them free stuff in the case of Ukraine, that's an overwhelming demand, uh, you know, uh, pipeline that we we just can't keep up with. So one of the one of the things I'm trying to also get this this executive branch to realize is that what they're asking for isn't necessarily funding for Ukraine. They're, they're, what they're asking for in the 61 billion dollars is funding to go replenish uh, our own coffers and our own you know magazines and our shelves as a result of the drawdowns. Those are U.S. DOD weapons at that point, okay? So the other thing that they're asking for is to invest in, in, in capital uh, infrastructure improvements to increase capacity. And when you look at China, China's our biggest threat. 
Russia is an interesting threat because they're nukes, but China is still our biggest threat. We don't have a capability problem relative. It's not a technology problem that we have relative to China. We have a capacity problem relative to China, meaning they build stuff at a rate that we can't keep up with. And even though their stuff sucks, uh, it's low quality, it's not as technologically advanced as ours, they have so much stuff that it becomes a real threat to us or uh, a defense of Taiwan scenario. When we invest in capital infrastructure enhancements to to expand our production lines and get to better rates, that is a DOD interest. That is a U.S. DOD interest. So why are you putting this in the Ukraine bucket if that's the case, right? If we're refilling our supplies, if we're resupplying our you know our, our ammunition depots, that is not a Ukraine effort. That is that is a U.S. DOD effort. So. Rather than calling it Ukraine funding, call it DOD supplemental or whatever we need to call it for industrial base enhancements or, or resupplying, re-ammoing, you know, re rearming our, our ammunition depots. Because what's happened is I think this president thinks that Ukraine is still this like super wildly popular issue and you can go put everything you want in, uh, in the Christmas tree in this Ukraine bucket. And he hasn't recognized that it's become a, it's actually become a political third rail. He, he hasn't made that paradigm shift at all. And by the way, I'm not saying that to hoodwink Congress. I'm not saying that to hoodwink uh, the American taxpayer, you know, taxpayers at all. I think these are genuinely DOD investments. So call them DOD investments. It's actually a, a truth and, you know, accounting kind of uh, thing here. And oh, by the way, if we do that correctly, then it, it does potentially also help Taiwan. It does also potentially help Israel and maybe even Ukraine at some point again, but investing in our infrastructure. The third element of this that I think is very important, I haven't started really talking about it till today, whatever this deal is, whether it's Ukraine border, Ukraine, Taiwan, you know, Israel, whatever it is, it needs to also include the pay raise that we that we have for our troops in the DOD bill and the NDAA. Um, I wrote the Raise Act, which takes the E-1 starting salary from $22,000 a year, which is crazy. I don't think most Americans realize that our troops start at $22,000 a year, which is like $11 an hour. So my Raise Act in the DOD budget, probes budget, and then in the NDAA raises that to 31000 So it takes them from $11 an hour to $15 an hour, which is still not great, but it's, it's a, it'll be the biggest pay raise. At least gets them off of food stamps, gets them close to parity with fast food workers, which is, which is still sad. But that ripples up through the E6 rank. That has been cited by the president. That pay raise has been cited by the president as his rationale for vetoing the NDAA that we're working on right now literally put a veto message out saying this pay raise is not needed. Uh, it's, it's premature. This is why we have the worst you know, retention and recruitment issues that we have. We've got low readiness levels across the board, morales in the, in the, in the crapper. Uh, this president has literally cited this pay raise as the reason he's going to veto the NDAA. So I think for our conference, we need to include this junior enlisted pay raise as one of the, the, the you know, major elements of this deal. Yeah, um, I, I wanted to ask a bit more about the situation in the Middle East right now, too. The, we've seen um, since the October 7th attack and the subsequent invasion of Gaza, there have been stepped up attacks on U.S. forces throughout the region. Yeah. So there's a lot of fear this could escalate into a broader um, regional war. And it's, you know, unclear whether Israel can eliminate Hamas solely by military means and what comes after. We weren't able to do that with Al-Qaeda after 9-11. So have you been briefed on what the end state of um, the Israel war is? Because in some ways, isn't it a bit like Ukraine in terms of knowing what we need to have as an end state? Yeah, and I think it's actually a stark contrast. I think we do know uh, what the mission uh, objective is right now with, with this Israeli conflict uh, relative to Hamas and Gaza, especially. 
uh, we do know what the what the objectives are. We know what the strategy are uh, strategies are to enable that objective, and we've got the fidelity now on this munitions list that we're approving this this week, hopefully today, that we pass that the fourteen billion dollar package is actually the warheads to put on you know the Hamas forehead. So that is an actual stark contrast to the Ukraine situation where we have intentional strategic ambiguity coming out of Ukraine and also out of our own White House. Netanyahu has been very clear about what the objective is, what the strategy is to achieve the objective, and now he's been very clear that these are the munitions that he needs for us to enable that victory. Now, whether there's long-term follow-on campaigns or operations after that, I don't know. Uh, We don't have that clarity yet. I've personally fought in the Middle East and during wartime operations, so uh, I, I don't, you know, my goal, I don't think it's a reasonable goal to have peace in the Middle East, but I think it's a reasonable goal to have stability in the Middle East, which is what we had the last couple of years. Stability in the Middle East is achievable. The extension and the, de- the deepening of the Abraham Accords are, are critical tools to do that. But we can't do that if, if you have active terrorist organizations invading, you know, Israel's homeland. So they have a right, they have an obligation to go eradicate Hamas. As far as the other countries getting involved, um, they, they, it would be in their interest to not do that. Um, I would like to see this president. You mentioned the attacks on our troops. That's not getting almost any coverage. Um, you see a headline every once in a while, you know, 12 American service members under, injured in Iraq. Um, but we need to put a bright light on that, and, and we need to rain down the fury of a thousand sons on these guys that go and, 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 and attack American troops. And this president needs to be very vocal about the fact that we will use asymmetric force against anyone that, that brings, uh, you know, any kind of kinetic uh, threats or attacks to American soldiers overseas. Um, when it comes to asymmetric force, I, uh, you know, Russia, since their invasion of Ukraine, they've killed 550 Ukrainian children since last year. By comparison, the Hamas attacks killed 447 Israeli children in a day. And in the last three weeks, we've seen Israeli strikes kill at least 3,257 Palestinian children in the Gaza Strip, which is, I think, according to Save the Children, more than the um, the one year of conflict for the past three years. Um, The Biden administration has said there are no red lines or limits on the aid we give Israel. So obviously we don't have direct influence over Russia or Hamas, but do you think the U.S. should use its leverage to push Israel to limit child casualties? All nations, frankly, all in our, in our Western allies, should do everything in their power to control collateral damage, right? When you drop a bomb or when you launch a missile, you have an obligation to make sure that you are minimizing collateral damage. Now, what, what you don't have an obligation to do is, is, to, is to jeopardize your own security or your own readiness or, your, or, the, or the welfare of your own troops or your own civilians. I also think that Hamas is not enabling uh, the, the protection of their own civilians, the protection of their kids. Um, in fact, they've probably made it almost impossible for, for the civilians to get to safe locations and to leave Gaza in an in a, in a expeditious manner. So, I, And I think the Israeli Defense Forces are doing everything they can to minimize the collateral damage. Uh, unfortunately, this is why you don't start wars. And, and when you're dealing with a terrorist organization that doesn't value life to begin with, you, you see the relatively lower casualties with children and, and innocent civilians in Ukraine and Russia because... Both of those actors do value life. They're not, you know, Putin is crazy and, and he's, he's clearly, you know, uh, arrogant and he's, he's a tyrannical dictator, but not at the level that Hamas is where there's they're, they're such, uh, you know, evil terrorists uh, that they're effectively savage animals that they don't value any life at all. When you have one side that is like that, 
they make it so that the, these collateral dam damage numbers are, are worse than probably anyone wants. And so this is this is the fault of Hamas, not the Israelis. And you mentioned the Abraham Accords. Mm -hmm. um, a, a lot of countries in the Middle East and Global South are they are picking up on these civilian casualties, mass damage. They're wondering what's going to happen to all these Palestinians in Gaza. And China and Russia often like to dismiss us when we talk about the rules-based international order. So are you worried this war could push other countries closer to the Russian and Chinese orbit? Because they are both making inroads in the Middle East and elsewhere. Yeah, Africa. this is, first of all, let's get back to root cause, right? All of this starts with a very weak U.S. president right, that, that fails to not just be present, but also fails to, to execute sound policies and strategies on the global stage. Afghanistan is the glaring catalyst to all of this. We, we blundered on the international stage that was at an unprecedented level for, for President of the United States, Secretary of Defense, to make the mistakes that they did was a loud and clear signal to the entire globe that the United States may not be the preeminent superpower that we were just maybe six months before that. Then to see the Afghanistan debacle take place, um, to see the mistakes being made, to see this commander-in-chief double down on it, calling it a success, reinforces to the Chinas of the world and the Russias of the world um, that we are weak and that our commander-in-chief is, is, is frankly derelict. Uh, while all that's going on, we turn our back on South America. While all that's going on, we are not having meaningful conversations in the Middle East about expanding the Abraham Accords and, and, and maybe deepening the existing agreements. Um, so we're not instilling sort of this cooperative mentality uh, in, the, in these areas that we should be. Our own backyard, South America, Central America, you see the rate of growth of Chinese influence in these South American countries. It's staggering. Um, um, and even in Cuba now, right? So um, we haven't been present. And it's, it's, it's bad enough to not be present, but then when you're also then going to make those blunders on the global stage like what we saw in Afghanistan, and then you're also then going to make those, those, those absolutely ridiculous uh, statements like what Biden did leading up to the Russian invasion saying, you know, the reaction of U.S. Uh, forces and our allies will be dependent on how big of an encroachment, uh, you know, Putin uh, executes. Uh, that is green lighting, uh, effectively, this type of behavior on the global stage. So a, a sovereign nation is going to be very sort of tempted by especially the Chinese offers. And that temptation turns into regret, but it takes five to ten years for that to happen. So if we're not going to be in these countries having conversations about why you need to continue to partner with the United States, if we're not going to demonstrate on the global stage why it's important to continue to partner with the United States, we are begging China and Russia to then come in and take advantage of those vacuums. And, that, and that's what we're seeing right now. So uh, unfortunately, the errors, and the, and the, the errors are realized right away. Uh, and then the regrets take five to 10 years for these other countries to recognize that maybe China is a bad business partner. So that's, that's yet to be realized. And last question is on the Indo-Pacific before I let you go. Thank yeah. you. Chairman Gallagher is pushing for a plus up to the Indo-Pacific portion of President Joe Biden's defense supplemental request. As a defense appropriator, is that something you'd be amenable to? And how much more do you think we should have if so? Yeah, I think uh, it's similar to the border discussion, which is we, we do have a funding challenge. There's not enough money we can spend on our pivot to the Pacific that we haven't fully executed yet. We've been talking about pivot to the Pacific for, what, 12 years now. Haven't fully executed, haven't fully funded it, and we've got real significant readiness issues, especially with our ships. We have one of the weakest secretaries of the Navy that we've had uh, in decades right now. Um, we have a logistics challenge in the Pacific and a readiness issue. We also have a recruiting and, and, and you know retention problem with our troops that we've talked about. So we, we've got to make sure we're, we're not just sending more money, but also looking at the root cause of the management failures that we've got here and some of the policy decisions that have been made here and also addressing that industrial base and the capacity problem that we have. China builds two ships a month. We built two ships a year. 
Mm-hmm. And then we decommission, you know, 1.5 uh, on average. And by the way, that's the ships are very important in, in the South China Sea because that's where the projection of power is realized. So uh, for our Navy to be in the condition, and I've been there, I've been in, uh, in Japan and South Korea in the last, uh, uh, within the last, what, nine months, to see the readiness levels that we're at right now, and you see the rate of growth of the Chinese CCP forces, the PLA, it's a, it's a very daunting uh, situation. So more money is needed. Uh, but like the border, um, it's not just a money problem. It's a policy. It's a management problem. It's an oversight problem. And you can easily spend more money on the problem and actually get less results if you don't hold those people accountable. So um, the bottom line is we need administration change. Um, we, this has been a very costly three years, and, and, and you know I can't imagine five more years of this. So this next year we're vulnerable. Things are going to get worse. And, and uh, all we can do as legislators is hopefully affect policy changes and then put the funds behind those correct policies. And that, that's what we're trying to compel. That's it for us this morning. To get more of the top stories and breaking news, go to defensenews.com slash EBB to subscribe to the Early Bird Brief newsletter. Please give us a like, rating, and a comment wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to follow us on social media at defense underscore news and at military times. The Early Bird Brief is hosted by me, Jonathan Lairfeld, and produced by Zimone Z. Perez. Today's episode features stories by Bryant Harris. Our editor-in-chief is Mike Gruss. Have a great day.